and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at Ed Surge. Maria Clawe has been the president of Harvey Mudd College since 2006. It's a little college in California, and it's known as a powerhouse in engineering and computer science. Clawe is the first woman to lead the institution, and one of her missions has been to increase diversity there. That has meant working to do things like make introductory CS classes more welcoming to all by by changing the way they're taught and sometimes the attitudes of the instructors. But for Clawe, it's also meant making herself more approachable by doing things that just aren't very presidential, like clumsily riding a skateboard across campus with plenty of padding. I'm really bad. I mean, I really look sort of like the Michelin Man or something like that. Like, it's really funny. It's also meant working outside the college by doing things like helping nonprofits encourage girls to code long before they're old enough for higher ed. Clawe's work has been hailed as a success story. Back when she started at the college, around 30% of the students there were female. Today, it's up to 45%. But she's not declaring victory. In fact, she's the first to say she has not done enough to make sure computer science is welcoming to all groups, including people of color. And when college trustees ask her, when is this diversity thing going to be done? She has an answer that might surprise you. I recently sat down with Chloe after she'd given a talk at MIT, of course, about her work in diversity in tech. Here are some highlights of that conversation. I'm sitting here with Maria Clave, president of Harvey Mudd College. Thank you so much for talking with us. It's my pleasure. I have really been eager to talk to you for a while because you've been so active in you know, inclusiveness in computer science and, and engineering. And that issue, we hear about it all the time now. Um, I, I thought I'd want to, before we get to it, though, I, I almost wonder to get your read on where we are with with big tech and society even. And, and you know, I, I think you're somebody who, as a math professor um, and somebody that's been doing that for a long time, there was somebody we talked to on the podcast who wrote a book, um, Weapons of Math Destruction. Oh, I've read that book. Yeah, it's a great and, book. And, you know, we're at this moment where algorithms, this is not just, you know, being a math major, it'd be like, oh, that's nice for you. But this is the coin of the realm all of a sudden. This is the key to sort of the, the, the big tech in a way. Um, but at the same time, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of angst right now about this. Like even compared to, say, a few years ago, I feel like... Um, there's there's a lot of questions about where all these algorithms are getting us. So I guess I wonder, um, how uh, are you surprised by the sort of that shift and where people are, the concerns people are really having, these deep concerns about where algorithms are taking us um, right now in society? So I've, I've been pretty passionate about, you know, diversity and inclusion in tech for, you know, 30 years. Yeah. So... Uh, it's not new for me, but as I've been talking about it, let's say over the last 20 years, one of the things I've said all along is the reason we need diverse people in technology is because when you have people coming to technology who have the same kind of background and framework, mm-hmm. they don't ask the hard questions. And you know, we're seeing right now in all kinds of different ways that when you don't have people challenging groupthink, you can make a lot of mistakes. So I think we're in a place right now where we just are recognizing that there are lots of questions we have not asked in the past that need to be asked now. 
and where we're recognizing that by having more diverse people go into te technical careers, we're more likely to get better answers. Does that mean we've gone far enough? Of course not. Mm -hmm. Does it mean that you know, we can be sure that we're not going to make some humongous mistakes in the future? We will still make mistakes, but I think it gives us, it starts us in a better place. It makes it more likely that when you're talking about, well, I really think we should code this this way and we should treat this data this way and so on and so forth, that somebody's going to say, well, have you thought about what happens if? Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that has changed enormously in the last, let's say, couple of years is the Me Too movement. And I think there's now a lot of behavior that was pretty much taken for granted where essentially people were particularly women, but people of color as well, were treated in ways that was completely inappropriate. And, and so these are not the same issue, but they're related. Mm. And so I think we're just, we're recognizing that we need to think about a variety of ethical issues in different kinds of ways, about the impact of power, about who gets to make what decisions and so on. And I think that's a really good thing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like I almost want to know like where it starts. Um, you in your talk you just gave you mentioned that you know when you were growing up as a girl people said girls don't do math. This is what you you know and, and um, how how have we come very far in these broader sort of just from the very beginning of, of gender in the U.S. right now or or where do you see um, where do you see the, the the most need of intervention or is it at the college level where you can enact change where you are at your college and, and I think culturally things vary enormously in different parts of the United States. Hmm. Um, in when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, um, my daughter went down to work with the Red Cross. She was having a semester off from college and she went down to volunteer. When she came back, she says, Mom, why didn't you tell me how sexist things were? I grew up thinking that women and men, young women and men, got exactly the same opportunities. And she said, I just couldn't believe how I was treated. Hmm. I'm going, what do you mean? And she said, well, nobody would let me walk alone. They felt like I had to have a male walk with me from the restaurant two blocks to the apartment I was staying in. When I would come up with a suggestion of how we should do something better in terms of some resource allocation, they wouldn't listen to me because I was a 22-year-old. You know, I mean, it just was uh, stunning for her how different the culture was. Mm. And, you know, she had, she spent, you know, she grew up in Vancouver and then, you know, moved to the U.S. for her college education, had never encountered this. So, and, you know, I'm just talking within one country, from country to country, there are huge differences mm -hmm. in how, how women are treated, how gay people are treated, how, you know, all of these kinds of things. So we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you, um, you have, for your introductory classes, it sounds like you have a, a, a black and a gold level, you know, for, for those with different levels of preparation coming in. So the reason you have these split trails, I almost feel like the trails in a skiing, you know, it's, yeah. it's winter right now. The, the yes, it's green like and the black, blue and black, whatever. Yeah. 
um, is is because it it's part of this effort to make sure there's that you're not excluding people or making people feel left out. It's part of the effort to make sure that everybody develops mastery without feeling intimidated. I heard you talk. I'm I'm, I'm really interested in you had said in your talk the other day that that you're also seeing like just some people come in wildly prepared and some from high schools that they're the top of their class and they right. still don't have this. Right. They just don't know the same amount. So I guess I'm curious what, um, it's completely out of your control obviously, but in the K-12 um, setting that, that precedes their time at MUD, it sounds like things are very unequal. Oh, they're incredibly unequal. And this is, you know, I'm involved in several initiatives to try and improve things in the K-12 level. So Math for America, Math for America in LA in particular, I founded, and um, Ed Reports is another example of a, a real effort. Uh, so Ed Reports focuses on curriculum for math, English, language, arts, and science. Mm -hmm. uh, math for America focuses on um, professional development for math teachers, um, both giving them more professional development, giving them more recognition, giving them some resources so they can do more professional development with the teachers in their schools. And you know, it's been it's been very successful in LA. It's it's the biggest uh, operation of Math for America is in Los is in uh, New York City, and it's it's been very effective there as well. And actually, in New York City, it includes science teachers as well as math teachers. In uh, Los Angeles, it's math teachers, and we've just recently added CS teachers. So uh, the fact of the matter is the, the disparity between the quality, the best schools, and I'll just talk about public schools for the moment, between the best public schools in the US and the average public school is just horrendous. So in Los Angeles, um, if you look at the LA uh, USD, the average student starting eighth or ninth grade has a third grade reading level and a third grade math level. Mm -hmm. And what makes it really incredibly complicated if you're trying to teach them is that the things they are missing from an eighth grade or a ninth grade level is different for every child. Mm -hmm. So what we look at when we admit students to MUD is Again, we look for a student who might be the top student from their high school, who has taken every advanced math, English, science course they could lay their hands on. And then we have to recognize that we need to provide a lot more support for those students because there will be gaps. And so we have, um, we have something called academic excellence, which is uh, tutoring in all the core courses that's available. I think it's five nights per week, but something like that. And we've seen a 40% increase in the use of academic excellence in the last five years, which is, which is really good. Um, but yes, um, you know, I think at MUD we feel pretty strongly. We are you know, certainly one of the best undergraduate educations you can get in STEM fields. We don't want to say you have to have one of the best high school educations in order to actually have access to this kind of learning experience. You, it seems like um, a lot of what we're talking about is something um, I think I've heard you call inclusive pedagogy, mm -hmm. which is you know a thing people talk about. Are there any other tips you can give other colleges, especially ones dealing with, with math and sciences, but I'm sure it would apply to others too, um, 
for how to be more inclusive in your pedagogy? So, so one of the ones I often mention is uh, we often think of an introductory course or even just a certain course in a sequence as being a gateway course. Mm -hmm. And we think about that as, and often uh, the person teaching, the instructor will say something like, this is the course where you really find out if you are right, if you're ready to be a mathematician, if you have what it takes to be a mathematician. So it'll weed out some people. Weed out, yes. So you could do it in computer science, you could do it in math, you can do it in any discipline, chemistry, physics, whatever. So one of the things we say is, and that we encourage our instructors to say is, so it might not start out the same way. This is a challenging course. Mm -hmm. You will have to work hard to do well in this course. And then you say, and you'll need to ask for help. But those of you who work hard and get help are going to do just fine. Hmm. So because implying that, I mean, if you're teaching rigorous technical material, rigorous humanities, social sciences, and the arts, I mean, anything can be very challenging. But it's the expectations you're setting for the students. Mm -hmm. Are you saying, okay, this is, a, this is a course where look to your left, look to your right. One of you is not going to be here mm -hmm. at the end of this course. Or you're saying look to your left, look to your right. You're all going to be here, but especially if you work hard, help each other, and ask for help. And these are probably students at their top of their class. They didn't have to get this kind of help in high school or whatever. Right. They've never had the experience. So I have to tell you about one of my students who I'm incredibly proud of at the month. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to use a pseudo name for him. Mm -hmm. I'll call him Tom at the moment. That is not his name. So I met Tom in his first year, and he is an only child, and it's very clear. He was top of his class and very clear that his parents wanted him to do really well. <laughs> And throughout his first year, he felt like he just was not. He was sort of right in the middle. He was doing fine, but mm -hmm. he just felt like a failure. And second year, the same way. And I meet with him every month to six weeks or so, because once I found out he was feeling crummy, then you know, if I, if I encounter a student like that, I want to try and encourage them. Okay, he's now a junior. He has a work internship that he's super excited about. He aced a course that is thought to be extraordinarily challenging. The prof in that course made him the TA hmm. for the, the course this semester and invited him to do private research. It's a very hot area of computer science. and. And I'm going like, wow, this is amazing, Tom. This is just like you, you're turning into a star. Then I saw the prof who's teaching the course, and I said, you know, I was just talking to Tom, and he mentioned, the prof goes, he's amazing. He's just incredible. So, you know, here's someone struggled for the first two years, mm -hmm. is suddenly blossoming. Is he feeling confident? More confident, but not really confident yet. He's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's going to do. I happen to know someone high up in the company where he's doing his internship, so I've already, you know, reached out and made sure that they know what he's passionate about. Which is, since it's hot area, it's easier for them to do. Hmm. But you know, this is the sort of 
this is one of the reasons why I think being at a place like MUD is such a wonderful experience for faculty and for administrators or staff, is you get to work with students who virtually every student goes through some level of sort of like, do I belong here? Am mm -hmm. I really Imposter good enough? Syndrome. Imposter you, syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yes. Am I really good enough to be here? And I'm so proud when they find, at some point, they find the thing they're passionate about that they realize they can really make their own, and then they fly. Hmm. So I feel like I do have to ask you about skateboarding, because I know yes. I read one profile where you were the skateboarding president when you first got there. Um, it, it, can you tell um, our listeners about, about your adventures in skateboarding? Yeah. Which I guess people skateboard on your campus is like in California and it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So the first thing I should say is that's a really important um, prelude to this is I am particularly uncoordinated. Ah, so, so you picked a challenge. Yes. So, and I believe that one of the errors we make in our society is we tell people, do what you're good at. Hmm. Now, I, I know what I'm good at. And I do like to do what I'm good at, things that I'm good at. So I'm good at math and I'm good at painting. Those are my sort of like two things. Um, particularly bad at learning things that require coordination. But I've always you know, seen people on skateboards and thought, oh, that'd be so cool to do. So after about three months at MUD, I bought a skateboard. And you know, I bought all, all possible pads you could, so I have of course, a helmet, I have wrist guards, I have elbow pads, I have knee pads, I have hip pads. And, you know, I put on all of these things. And then you know, I would go out and I would practice. And I'm really bad. I mean, it took me four years to get to the point where students are after about two weeks. <laughs> and students would come up and help me and they would teach me different kinds of things. And one of the things I realized was that while I was out there, you know, I really look sort of like the Michelin Man or something like that. Like, it's really funny. Really shy students would come up and talk to me in a way that they would never do if I wasn't on my skateboard. Huh. Like, for whatever reason, it made it okay. So after about four years, I was reasonably competent. I still can't stop in any graceful way. Like, you should be able to sort of drag your foot gently. Okay, I just leap onto the grass and you take the skateboard with me so that it stops in the grass and I'm in the grass further ahead. So then um, we went through a period of um, unrest on campus and I didn't read, uh, I didn't ride my skateboard at all during that period of time just because it felt too frivolous. And then after, you know, a couple of years of not trying, I got on it and I can't skateboard anymore. So I have to start practicing again. One last question, and I appreciate all the time, but I'm curious, you've been at this so long, as you mentioned, about trying to get better diversity, more inclusive teaching in, in the STEM fields. And yet, here we are. It's, it certainly hasn't been solved. Even you say at MUD, it's still, you have ways to go. Are you, what, how do you feel about that? Is that frustrating to see the, that level where you're at? Or what, what is your, uh, yeah, where are we? So I, I guess the thing that I see at MUD is we have come so far mm. in the last 12 years. Um, and I would say we have gotten to the point where everybody takes it for granted that women are everywhere. They're faculty members, they're department chairs, they are s students in every discipline. 
the place that we still have a long ways to go is when you are an institution that was essentially white and male for its first 30 years, you have a ton of things that you're not even aware of that are going to be challenging for people who are not white and male. So a lot of those things have been addressed for women. I don't want to say it's all done, but we've mm -hmm. made a lot of progress. But, you, you know, racial changes, I, we're in a society that has enormous amounts of racism still. And so, for example, we have a, a black faculty member who is black, gay, Muslim, and Canadian. And so he'd never been stopped while driving a car until he moved to the U.S. Mm -hmm. in Canada. And I asked him when he'd been with us for about 18 months, how many times you've been stopped while you're driving? Seven. Hmm. And he says, and it's terrifying because I have no idea what to do. Hmm. Because I, you know, I can't joke with the car. I'm just, I don't know what to do. So, so there are a lot, as far as race goes, there's a lot more happening that affects not just what happens outside the college, but inside the college. And so um, sometimes, once my board chair said, this diversity and inclusion thing is, do we ever get there? And I said, absolutely not. This is something that we're gonna be working on forever because we, are, we have a history of things that, that are, are just hard for us to get past. And, you know, we get up every day and we say, we're not perfect, but we're working on it. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier to make progress if you acknowledge that you're never going to get to this particular goal, that you're always going to be, because society changes. I mean, when, uh, when we went through the 2016 election, it changed things on our campus. It made a lot of people feel vulnerable and unsafe in a way that they hadn't before. And so that changes what it's like for the administration, the faculty and staff to be dealing with those individuals because they're bringing an, a raised level of uncertainty, suspicion to everything they're doing because all of a sudden things that they thought were sort of settled are now questionable. So whether you know trans people can serve in the military or in, you know, we have trans students, we have trans faculty. So, you know, it's just, uh, I think we just have to understand that we're on this, <laughs> we're on this track, and there are going to be easier parts of the track and harder parts of the track. But it's a track for a lifetime, and it's a track for more than lifetimes. But I feel incredibly, I mean, I talked about the BRAID uh, project today, and where we see 15 departments that have made really significant progress and have done it while consuming very little in the way of additional resources. And I look at that and I say, okay, it works. Mm -hmm. We can do this. But it's not over. Oh, it's never over. All right, well, uh, unfortunately our conversation this is, is over, yes. <laughs> to be continued. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, for me, the, the thing that struck me the most was, was this long-term attitude. And, uh, you know, the tech industry is a place of solutions, after all. Um, pitches that can be boiled down to TED Talks and, and the promise to reinvent some industry or fix some long-term problem with an innovative new approach. There's kind of a seductive promise of, of answers. But let's face it, 
the toughest problems in our society never really go away. Maybe the most important thing is to start admitting that some of these problems will just never fully be solved, no matter how smart people in the tech world are. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. If you like the show and, and want to see a taping in person, we're planning a series of interviews in public at the upcoming ASU GSV Summit in San Diego. That's on April 8th and April 9th. And, and we're going to stream those live, so you can watch them even if you're not at the event, thanks to a partnership with Shindig. Stay tuned for more details on that. Of course, you can subscribe and hear past episodes on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can do that right now. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.